Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Menace Podcast. My name is Nate Bird. I'm here with my co-host. Rachel Weaver. We are so happy to be back on the podcast with y'all. Yes, indeed. Happy to be here. Uh, Rachel's going to give us our Menace moment, then we'll jump right into it. Yes. So um, I'm very excited for our Menace moment today. It is about... You are, yes. Okay. <laughs> it is about Meghan Markle, which some people might think is a controversial choice, but I think it's a fitting choice because of everything she's done up to this point in her life. Um, so starting off, Meghan was, her original name when she was born was Rachel Meghan Markle. So she actually has the same first name as me, but she has chosen to go by Meghan. Um, and she was born on August 4th in 1981 in Los Angeles, California, making her 41 years old. And if you've seen any photos of her, this woman does not look 41. Um, she looks 30. So we love black does not crack. Um, <laughs> but she was um, born to Doria uh, Ragland and her mom, who is African-American. And then her dad, um, Thomas Markle, is white. And her parents actually met when they were working on the set of uh, General Hospital. Uh, which I don't know that's yeah. super funny and interesting to me classic LA couple getting together I will um, say that's very unusual to have a white father black mother in the 80s like right not that common so I, that's interesting it's not common and also like but they were in LA so like of all places to be more progressive mm-hmm. that's true. it could be those spaces compared to other places right yeah that's very true um Versus like my mom who's half and was born in in the sixties in the South. So that that that's uncommon. Right. <laughs> Good on them because interracial marriages are still difficult today, let alone back in the eighties, you know, no matter where yep. you are. No, seriously. Well, her parents actually ended up getting divorced um really early in Megan's life, but um they were still very active in her life. Like she spent just like her dad was present and she spent time in his house and did things with him just as much as her mom which I love for her because not all divorced kids can say the same mm-hmm. <laughs> um but kind of getting into what makes her menace one of the things that stuck to me is um when she was 11 years old she saw a commercial for Procter and Gamble um and there they were marketing like some cleaning product and basically the cleaning product the language they use in the advertisement was insinuating that only women were expected to do housework. This bothered 11-year-old her, um, and she decided to write a letter to the president of Procter and Gamble, um, and she wrote this letter and, like, told him that basically they need to change their language in the video, and um, it got to him, and they changed it. And, like, there's a video of, like, 11-year-old Meghan Markle being like, yeah, we need to change this and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I love That's learning about people's... Wild. Yes. You know, she said she heard that commercial say, uh-uh, no, this needs to go. Man, I but I think that that's my boogers cool. at 11, let alone right into the CEOs. Good for her. Exactly. And if you watch the, like, original video of her talking about it, she was so well-spoken. Hmm. I mean, just for an 11-year-old, you know, just, what the heck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who is helping you speak like this? So, <laughs> Good on her. quite impressive. But throughout her entire career, as she, you know, has gotten older, she made activism a really a top priority. She would always be volunteering in soup kitchens while she was a teenager and being involved in all types of service activities. Um, when she went to Northwestern University for her undergrad, um, she worked with the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, and then she started to kind of work with uh, the U.N. a little bit. Um, as she's gotten more um, further in her career and more present. Um, and so that kind of helped her to further the things that she wanted to do to advocate for women's. Um, and she worked with a lot of ref- refugee camps and met with women around the world to kind of help empower their communities once she um, got on suits, which was her biggest role to date. Um, and so I think that that's really cool that she had her own like activism spirit and bone before she got into the royal family and then once she married into the royal family that's a big part of what they do is activism and charity work and being involved Mm. and she used her platform to really elevate communities that previously maybe didn't have as much support um i just recently watched um the documentary um about harry and megan 
And one of the things that she did while she uh, was in her role as full-time role as the Duchess was there was a fire in London in a building that was predominantly immigrants and women and people of color. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I'm pretty sure women who were Muslim from from different nations um, and cooking is a big part of their culture. And so they all were displaced in hotel rooms for like two years. And they would come to this local community center to cook once a week. And so Megan like really got to know these women and went out of her way to always go over there because um, this fire was really bad. Like 72 people died. <clears throat> the, the, the conditions of the building were bad. They had been complaining for years about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think when Megan found out that this big community of color was having a lot of struggles, she went out to go work with them and when she found out that they were displaced in these hotel rooms and couldn't cook, which is a big part of them, and they were eating out and they were getting vouchers from, you know, they were being paid. But right. if you're in a hotel for two years, eating out every day is yeah, not healthy for time. you. That's absurd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and these are families, right? Like imagine a family of five being put in a hotel room. That sounds cool. Like you and your, like you as a couple, maybe it'd be fine. But like, mm-hmm. even then for two years, yeah, that's, that's really like not okay that's terrible yeah exactly so she got together and got funds because they couldn't afford to cook more than once a week mm-hmm. and so she got together and got funds for them to be able to cook multiple times a week help them get more access and more um places to cook and then she also helped them to make a cookbook that they released in nine months and sold worldwide it was like number one bestseller and they used the proceeds of that to go back to these communities and to help them with their displacement. And so to me, that was like, that had never been done by someone in the royal family previously, right? Like, would that have happened without Meghan Markle? Would they have seen this community in London that was primarily immigrants, primarily people who aren't Christian, right? Like, would they have gone out and helped them in this capacity? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Would this book have been made and would these proceeds still be helping this community with such a terrible event that happened to them because of their immigration status, let's be honest, and racial things that even put them in a space that has such terrible living conditions that would allow a fire of this capacity. So I think, and then, I mean, and the fact that Meghan and Harry gave basically the middle finger to the royal family and the tradition and said they were going to leave and support their and they wanted to save space for them and their family mm-hmm. i think that's menace alone um but also the activism that megan has participated in um to me proves that she's a menace in her own way good stuff that is yeah that's impressive is that all in the documentary um no yes they highlight like some of her other activism that she does um they highlight the things that she did, a lot of it, most of it, once she became a royal, and, like, they just talk about, like, how she kind of did things a little differently, and just, like, because she had her own previous background with, you know, advocating, Mm -hmm. she was very equipped to have these discussions, but it was a little different because they try to be very neutral, you know, the royal family and what they present and how they participate, and Megan's used to just being an American woman, being an activist, and so she's talking about the Me Too movement and things like that, and um, she's kind of getting the side eye from the press and the rest of the royal family because she doesn't have this like traditional, um, you know, more neutral tone to activism mm-hmm. because she is a woman of color. Oh, and something they pointed out in the documentary is they talked a lot about the Commonwealth, which is basically the countries that Britain still like mm-hmm. has control over. Yeah. And um, what it was really cool about it is they pointed out that Meghan is most of the countries. I think they said like over 50%, I'm pretty sure it's like 60, 70, 80%, somewhere up there mm-hmm. of the countries have people of color in them. Mm. But there's no one in the royal family that represents that. Right. And so like they were talking about how Megan really represented a lot of hope and it represented a lot of like proof that like the Commonwealth was important to the British people because like the queen is the head of the Commonwealth mm-hmm. and like she controlled that and, um, I think that that was a really good opportunity that they missed in the royal family of showing, hey, here's a person of color marrying in, and like, here's our olive branch because the other countries loved Meghan. Like, when she would visit other countries mm-hmm. where there were people of color, they were obsessed with her mm-hmm. because they were like, that represents us. 
in this empire that has so much control over us mm-hmm. and the way that they have just treated her has been um honestly disappointing and now other countries are moving away from the monarchy system like in jamaica and the um, barbados mm-hmm. the royal family like no longer has like they don't get paid by tax dollars anymore and they no longer like basically have say over things like they are there and they represent tradition but in terms of controlling the government more and more countries within the commonwealth are moving away from that that's good that's good yeah cool i like that so it's a very good documentary i highly recommend watching it Mm -hmm. um something that nate and i were talking about before we started recording today that we decided we wanted to speak about was Megan talked a lot about her experience with um, racial things with the royal family and talked about her experience kind of being targeted as a Black woman and a lot of the experiences she had once she joined the royal family were new to her because of her mixed race identity and her phenotypes and the way that she appears to the world. And something, a comment she made that we're going to use to kick off our discussion is she talked about how previously to really being in the royal family and being in the limelight with the royals, she was never really treated as a Black woman. And a lot of people have problems with this statement for different reasons. But she said that, you know, when she walks into a room, people don't look at her and say, she is a Black woman. And therefore, they're going to treat her as that. Mm -hmm. She is very fair-skinned. She has other European features. And she straightens her hair and has a very, like, um, not as coarse of hair compared to say me or Nate. So when she straightens it, it looks like a white person's hair. Um, And so when you see her, you can be like, I'm not sure what she is, um, but I'm not going to jump and say black. And so I think that was a fair statement for her to say because that's her experience. But um, people had issues with that for different reasons. But I mean, she is a mixed woman and that's her experience. And her day to day is like people don't look at her as being African-American. She has to tell them for them to understand that that's her and her background. Interesting. I think it's hard because I think I have more, I'm moving, I think me and other Black people need to move into this space of giving people who are mixed race the ability to identify as mixed race. Mm -hmm. I feel like for a while, like that was kind of seen as a no-no, almost like you were trying to disown your Blackness, which I don't think is true. And the reason why I'm um, a proponent of allowing mixed race people to say that they are mixed right that they're black and white not just claiming one is because that is their story right and like i don't have that that's not a part of my story i don't feel what they feel about having a white parent and a black parent feeling those emotions of feeling connected to both groups but in different ways and like physically there are so many variations in the way they can feel like people treat them and the way they can claim ownership because of just the way they look um, for example, Holly Berry in the documentary, they talk about Holly Berry's half. I didn't know that. I did not know that to the documentary. Holly Berry is um, half black, half white. Um, but in that's an example of a mixed race person who obviously she's lighter skinned, but she can claim like walking into a room, people do treat her like a black woman because that's how she appears. And she doesn't have to necessarily claim that part of herself in a way that someone who looks like Megan would. And so I just think we need to allow mixed race people to be able to claim that so that they can own all parts of their story without feeling like they have to pick one over the other. Because that's where they have a, based on the mixed race people I've talked to, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of turmoil comes for them is, oh, I'm not, I can't be a part of this group or part of this group because they're forced to pick one. And I think they should be allowed to have both be an equal part of them and claim both of them. Um, Because for this is just a recent thing. Personally, I feel like that I've seen that has been allowed. Because for a while, at least growing up, like, why are you saying that? Like, you're black. That's how people would act. Mm -hmm. At least where I'm from. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely guilty of of the same thing. Kind of this idea that if you are black, then you have to claim your blackness and your blackness only, or that that needs to be like Mm -hmm. the predominant part of you, um, like regardless of of what background you come from. And I think a lot of that kind of has to do with you know, with white supremacy, with the one drop rule, mm-hmm. and this idea that, like, if you have a drop of black blood in you, then you are a black person, and therefore you must, you know, do all of the things that a black person would do, like, whatever whatever form that takes, right? And so, um, 
I think, you know, having a lot of pride in who I am as a black man, um, that definitely fueled this idea that other people needed to have that same pride or that same, um, I guess, passion for blackness. And uh, it's Mm -hmm. something that I've had to learn is not necessarily the case. Like there are people who come from a very different background. Like, for instance, I'm black American. If I talk to somebody else who's Haitian American, they're going to have a very different outlook on what it means to be black. Or if I talk to someone who is um, African-American, meaning like from Africa, um, from a country in Africa and then came to the United States or if they have uh, you know, African parents and they grew up here, they're going to have a different perspective on what it means to be a black person. Right. So um, that's something that I had to I had to come to terms with and realize. And then, yeah, when you know, when it comes to someone being biracial, there's like a whole different mix of cultures and a whole different mix of like growing up. And I think probably the closest thing like I've never experienced that particular identity um like turmoil of identity, but I think the, probably the closest that I, like the closest experience I'd have to that is I'd say being a member of the church growing right. up and like being surrounded by white people in white spaces and having to try and like conform in that space, but then also having, mm. um, you know, uh, a fully uh, two black parents um, and then mm-hmm. like having that aspect of, of culture on that side, you know, all of my family members and things like that. So it's like, you know, at home, I'm learning what it means to to quote unquote be black, but then at church I'm learning what it means to quote unquote be white, and they don't quite mm. mesh together, you know. Um, and within the church, there's the whole idea of uh, white and delightsome. That's not necessarily taught out loud, but it is very much the predominant ideas um, within within that. And so I think that's probably the closest experience that I would have. I don't know if it's even similar, um, but that's something that we definitely need to talk with with somebody about in the future. We can have somebody on an interview. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a great point because as you were speaking, I'm like, yeah, right? Like, I don't go to church anymore, but whenever I do, it's, or like I'm in very white spaces like that with the LDS church, it does feel very like you have to, and growing up, I would feel this. I don't know if you felt this at all, Nate, like in order to be kind of seen as like a normal person, which is like, air quotes around that because what the hell is a normal person Mm -hmm. but like in order to be seen as like this normal person because I mean at least in my homework if you're from my homework listening to this isn't a diss to y'all but this is just the way things were I mean in order to not be treated like this like tokenized black family that needs a lot of help and like all these things I don't know if you know what I'm talking about but like seen as more of a basket case than Mm -hmm. an actual like someone who can contribute to the ward yeah um, you had to like conform to what white LDS people found as like a functioning family and like seen as like the way you can present yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, which is something I felt even at a young age in my ward. And I had never really like, I don't know, it's just something that I had never experienced until becoming LDS and being in these spaces. And like, I don't know, um, I'm visiting home right now. And like even being around people in my ward right now, like, I'm remembering those feelings. Um, and it's fine because I know how to play the game and I know how to present myself, but it's just right. super interesting um, that that's something that we dealt with as people who are not mixed, but like feeling like, I don't know, I now have empathy for that experience of mixed people, of people who are mixed race who feel that push and pull between two. Um, because, I mean, I guess culturally, because I was around a lot of LDS people in my childhood that is something that I felt and still felt and like impacted the way I even viewed my own blackness in presenting that. And like, how did I want to identify like my own internalized racism of like, how, what does it mean to be black? And like, how black do I want to present myself at this time? Mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, what impacted the way I interacted with black people until I was like in high school. And I think it's interesting that we have kind of like steered the conversation this way because I would, I, I do think that it would be a really good idea for us to talk with somebody else about like you know, somebody who I is agree. biracial and talk with him about it because the way that we've steered the conversation, um, neither one of us is biracial, right? And we've steered no. the conversation to talking about like our experience within the church and like how we've conformed, but it's always about how like we have this one side of us, the black side, and then it's how white people view that black side and how we adjust ourselves mm-hmm to fit into their idea but then for for people who are biracial or multiple races they have two different sides of them kind of like right not not literally but like you know they have two different sides there's two different cultures kind of intertwined here 
and they're having to figure out how to balance those two, right? So I think, because didn't Meghan Markle say that um, she had never been treated like a black woman or never felt yes. like, like that was what, what she was identified as or labeled by yeah. until she was a part of the royal yep. family? Yep. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I'd be, I'd be cool. interested to hear like more about yeah. that battle, that internal battle that people have for sure. Well, and it's interesting to hear like different mixed people of different mixes, right? And different, um, who are from different, part of different ethnicities or whatnot have different things to say about this and have different experiences. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to blackness, it's just interesting people's experience based on the way they look. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. And it's something that as I talk to more people who are mixed, um, just them expressing the way they feel. And I have found a common trend based on what has been told to me. So again, this is not my experience based on what has been told in my observation is people who have more ambiguous features or more European features are more likely from what I've seen to have more struggle with identifying with blackness mm -hmm. than people who appear very black, even though they are mixed. Because there are mixed race people who look like me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There are mixed race people who same skin tone as me, same hair texture or whatever. And they don't have as big of a struggle because they feel like they look the part almost, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not only look the part, but they're treated. They're treated, they're treated as the part. Yep. Like it's, right. easier, it's easier for someone who is less ambiguous, who is like more, you know, black looking. To just black presenting. Easily, yeah. Or black presenting, yes. Uh, to identify with blackness because that's how they're treated. That's how yep. they're socialized yeah. to see themselves. But if you're more ambiguous or if you lean more towards the lighter side um, yep. or if you're more white presenting, then it's definitely easier to identify more with that aspect of yourself because that's that's mm -hmm. how you're treated, how you're socialized. Yeah. And so when I saw some people like online kind of giving Megan just like a hard time for saying that, it made me upset. It really mm -hmm. made me upset because I was like, well, I appreciate what she was saying because she's being honest right and i think we need to allow like i was saying earlier we need to allow that space for mixed race people to say those things because black people were like well what does it mean to be treated like a black woman and i'm like what do you mean like i don't know why you're like trying right. to counter what she's saying because in my head i'm like right i we being treated like a black woman is being a, like these negative things are assumed about us all the time and i don't know why like we're fighting like that's not the truth like that's exactly what happens as you move through the world as a black woman right like i don't know why right. you're upset about these things because you can't claim that colorism is true and the way light-skinned people are treated is true but then also like try to question a lighter-skinned person when they're speaking like yeah that's true that happened to me mm -hmm. like i'm not treated like you you can't get mad at that like both things can't coexist and we need to allow them to exist and people need to speak on it so that we can have these conversations to move forward as a black community and heal, in my opinion. Absolutely. And yeah, I think the, the conversation like surrounding colorism, yeah, I, I appreciate Meghan Markle's contributions to that because like you said, she was being genuine and honest about how she's grown up, how she's been treated. And yeah, I think with the internet, I think people just are always looking for something to be upset about. I, I heard once that somebody said that... Um, the world is addicted to outrage and that's kind of always stuck with yeah. me because it's like, yeah, they really are. Like people always want to be outraged about something. But like a lot of times if you stop and just think about what's being said, there's really not a lot to be mad at. I mm -hmm. think um, like there's another situation with uh, the, the district attorney in Houston and like he, he made some tweets um, or I guess they resurfaced. He made these tweets back in 2011, 2012, um, mm -hmm. where he, and so he's currently, he was recently, um, made the assistant district attorney in Houston in 2021. Um, but they, yeah, these tweets that he had made back, you know, 10 years ago resurfaced and they're pretty bad. I was looking through some of them. Um, and he said some, some pretty messed up things, but a lot of them are, they're, they're very colorist and very sexist. Um, and I don't know if we've defined colorism, but for those of you who may not know, colorism is just, um, discrimination amongst uh, people of color based on um, how light or dark your skin is. So like the lighter that you are, the more favorable um, you're considered and the darker that you are, the less favorable you're considered. That's basically colorism. 
there's that there's also texturism which has to do with like hair texture and the closer your hair texture is to a white hair texture the more favorable it is the further away from that it is the less desirable it is and so on and so forth um, and futurism also contributes to this it's a newer thing but very big i think which one feature like your features like futurism just in knowing like having more european features and like this gets really deep into what colorism is like yeah. there are dark-skinned people who are represented but they have extremely like if you look at small nuance small thing here mm -hmm. if you look at models who are like darker skin who are normally featured mm -hmm. look at everything else about them mm -hmm. they have normally very small noses their noses are more like european mm -hmm. they normally have um they're very skinny normally just things that are again still centered around european beauty standards yeah. but they just have dark skin that's very true like, that's bringing in futurism to sense. the conversation because like example my mom who is half we didn't find this out until DNA. My mom's skin tone is very like light, mm -hmm. but her features are very African-American. Mm -hmm. So like, although she may be a similar skin tone as, at least when she was younger, like a Meghan Markle, my mom was very, very, very fair. Um, she like tans, <laughs> but her features do not allow her to be treated like a Meghan Markle because she can't, it, it just, her face, her face looks like she is mixed with black. Interesting. Yeah, I, I had sort of, I had no futurism, but yeah, that makes sense. It's especially apparent if you look at like movies from the early two thousands, like all you know, yep. Stomp the Yard, Drumline, Meet the Browns, like all of yep. those movies. You see that a lot in the um, in the actresses that were picked. A lot of times it was, um, you know, in those black movies it was usually like thin women who were a little bit on the lighter side, but you know, still obviously identified as as black. Um, but then also had those European features, very apparent mm -hmm. back then. And then I guess now we've moved more towards body positivity, but now it's kind of like gone completely the other way where it's like hyper everything. But yeah, I had never heard of features and that's interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, I guess that's like a, a um, not a nuance, but like a sub subcategory yep. of colorism. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and like experience, but keep going. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. Yeah, so some of the, I'm just going to read a few of these. These are pretty bad i don't like i don't like this stuff um but he said so this is an example of one he said light-skinned women can do no wrong you dark-skinned hoes can do no right don't blame me that's oh. just the way it is Ooh. he also said um you know what are those things running at you in temple run and he said dark skin not hoes. temple run right this is terrible. Um, <laughs> he said, oh, yeah. Good morning to the light skin goddesses. Brooklyn head nod to you, dark skin hoes. Well, uh, the moral of the story is dark or light skin women are winning out here. You dark skin hoes don't have a chance. Ooh. Oh, no. He said, Nah, how about I just tried to Hitler all the dark skin hoes and make the world a better place? Oh, golly. Okay, you know, I'm not these gonna are rough. You, yeah, these are bad. You get the idea. You get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so right now, you know, obviously, black Twitter is not amused. Um, and you, yeah, he was named um, assistant district attorney in Houston in 2021. Um, and these tweets just resurfaced uh, within the last couple of weeks. This is a an interesting situation because, you know, reading those, those are incredibly wrong. They're horrible. Um, they're disgusting tweets. Um, but then they were also 10 years ago. And this is the tweet that he released or he, he, he posted this just a few days ago. So on January 8th, he said, to those I've heard with my past tweets that have resurfaced, I'm deeply sorry. That was a moment in my life where I was sick in more ways than one. Uh, cooking saved me. I guess he, he does a lot of like cooking and stuff on social media now. He said, cooking saved me. You have watched a flawed man heal. I will continue to heal and learn. Thanks for being along for the journey. So I read this, and I haven't read all the tweets. Um, I would say that initially, I was like, okay, he's, you know, he's apologized, um, you know, he's he's trying to be better. Uh, the, the, the district attorney's office released a statement saying 
that they believe that he's a changed man, um, that during, he's, he explained that these posts came during a period in which he was struggling with some serious personal issues, including alcohol addiction. Uh, prior to joining our office, Mr. Wesley went through treatment and has worked with the State Bar of Texas to resolve his issues. His recovery is ongoing. Um, and yeah, this is from the district, district attorney's office. I believe I'm a believer in second chances, and Mr. Wesley has conducted himself professionally since joining our staff. I'm confident that will continue. Um, so you've got you've got that side of things, and you know the more recent. You know, obviously, I, I do think that he has changed. However, I don't know that that tweet is enough like because he said some terrible mm-hmm. things you know I, I i don't know that deleting the tweets will make it better yeah um but that's to say those kinds of things is i mean he was very deeply sick and it, it i just don't know how you how you reconcile that you know what i mean yeah i think i agree i think it's really hard to like prove that you don't think that way anymore right like mm-hmm. i don't know i think and i said because i think there are things i used to think that weren't maybe the best and mm-hmm. i think i thought of things a little more flawed or i wasn't fully where i wanted to be with certain topics let's say and oh i've changed and evolved like my opinion on those things because i've learned more more experience in life and i corrected those things right mm-hmm. But it's hard to like prove that you changed in that way. Right, right. Um, so I think that that's a hard thing. How do you really prove that you don't think that way anymore? But also, yeah, because like, how do we know that those things are tr- fully truthful? Mm-hmm. How do we know that he's being 100% honest and he's not just saying that because he doesn't want to get canceled or he doesn't want to lose his job? Right, that is true. Um, I mean, apparently he's not in any danger of losing his job. And like mm-hmm. his conduct at the district attorney's office has been professional, I guess, over the last what two years. But um, I guess I guess the issue here is that like there's no way that he can really make that up, and there's no way that he can prove to everybody. He's just got to wait for it to mm-hmm. blow over. You yeah, know what I mean, um, because like I said, people are addicted to outrage. But this is definitely something to be outraged about. Um, Agreed. But at the same time, it's like, is there anything that can really be done? It seems like he's trying to do better now. That's really all there is to it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I was telling you this earlier, and I feel like it's, for me, I have, if people say they're trying to do better, I try to believe them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. He's not trying to defend his actions, which I appreciate right. because I feel like a lot of people, when they say, colorist things or things that are rooted in just problematic views they always try to defend what they said like mm-hmm. oh that's not what i meant or i don't mean you know what i mean like they try to go back and change what they said when they said it and i appreciate that he's like yeah that was what i thought and that's not what i think anymore so like to me that has to mean something like the acknowledgements of it hopefully and that's hard because if we're being honest at least in my case in my life I didn't grow up where these things were talked about, like colorism in particular mm-hmm. and like understanding the nuances and like, we don't think that way. Like those things just weren't said in my house, not because we believed in this idea, right? But it just wasn't something that maybe was acknowledged at the level that it is now within our community. At least in my opinion, I think we've come a long way in certain ways and made a lot of strides. But I think maybe 10 years ago, I'm thinking back to myself, or was I 13? Those kind of things weren't said to me. And if right. anything, like the opposite was true. Like colorism, colorist views were taught to me, right? Like they were doubled down just as in my, I'm not calling anybody out in particular in my family or saying names, but I mean, when I had struggles with bullying when I was younger, it was told to me because like, the people who were bullying me were darker skinned people. And it was told to me, oh, they're just jealous. Like things like that were said to me as a child. So like, so just so that we can understand like the then that's just contributing to the problem of colorism in my right, opinion. Right, right. Um, and very much not true and like discredits the experience that darker skinned people have. Um, but I think that, that that's just an example saying that we are not 
10 years ago, we weren't where we needed to be. And maybe today we are and people know better and hopefully they're doing better because when I raise my kids, if I have them, you know, this is something that I would teach them that like, we don't believe these things. This is where it's rooted in. This is why it's a problem so that they can be better and know from a young age, these issues surrounding colorism and um, futurism and all these things so that they, you know, even if they're taught it in the world, they're not taught it in their home. So I don't know. It's, it's a ta- it's a hard topic to prove that things are, are better. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's important to, um, like you said, to, to, to make sure that we are teaching young kids that they themselves are beautiful, no matter what yep. they look like. I think that's very Amen. important. I'm um, growing up in my house. You know, the all of us were dark. I was the darkest, I think, in my family. But all of us were taught that like our dark skin was beautiful, and like that was never in question. I mean, you know, obviously there are outside forces that would have us think otherwise. But at least in our homes, we knew that like we were all you know beautiful, um, that we were all special in our own way, and there wasn't this idea of like lighter skinned people being better and so i i will say that i never like i never saw that or had that that thought in my mind um at least not consciously you know growing mm. up like i never looked at someone who was lighter and thought that they were better than me or, or mm. anything like that um being i think that was you know a, a big part of that was because of how i was taught to believe or to, to um, love right. myself growing yep. up you know in certain ways and just appreciating like the the color of my skin and all of that yeah, and I mean, my family has just like an array of skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very large, varying amounts of skin tones in my family. My mom is light, my mom's half, and then my dad is very dark. And then my siblings, we all have a range within us. And it's just interesting. And like hearing the experience of my younger sister, who's the darkest in our family, and just hearing the way she speaks about things, it's always very telling that like, colorism is real and like people observe so closely. For example, my little sister, she would tell me all the time growing up, oh, you're pretty because you're light skin, Rachel. Mm. And I'd be like, what? Like, I'm so sorry. Like, even still, she'll still say like random comments like, oh, it looks better on you because you're lighter than me. And I'm like, no, like I always stop her and I'm like, that isn't true. And like just seeing even her reaction of us calling her dark, it's very interesting. Mm. And like, I'm trying to help her unlearn these things, but um, we'll, like, I'll say something about, like, oh, Rohana, something about being the darkest or whatever, and she's like, I'm not that dark, and I'm like, oh, like, I'm not saying that, I'm like, I'm just saying that, oh, I'm not trying to say you're this very, you know what I mean, like, this isn't a negative thing, like, let's slow down, like, it's okay, Um, and it's just very interesting to hear the way, um, I've also heard other dark skin people have a similar reaction, if you call them dark skin or like call them dark and they're very like defensive about that. Like, I'm not that dark. I'm not, I'm like, but you are like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. This is just the fact of life. And like, it's okay. Like I'm not saying these are negative things. This is just the facts, bro. And so um, whenever I have those experiences, it's very telling to me that people who are darker have had a much different experience than even me um, that I don't even understand in it just helps me to want to work on it even more because I'm like, I don't want anyone to ever feel that way about anything. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I want people who are very fair to feel like they can claim their blackness and that they're a part of the community, no matter what they look like is this is who they are. They can claim it and own it and be a part of it and enjoy it. But I also don't want people who are darker to feel like they are less desirable, less attractive. Um, like they have less to contribute to anything because of their darker skin and, I just hope to be a part of the solution. And um, it's something I'm very passionate about and really want to hold other people accountable for too. Mm -hmm. And I do that in my daily life. And it's causing contention in certain spaces, but I don't care because we all owe something to this situation for it to improve. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And um, I think that a lot of these ideas um, that are perpetuated are, are perpetuated by older generations. I do think that yep. we are moving away from these Agreed. ideas. And, you know, we're, we're coining new terms to describe different things. Like I had never heard of featureism, but you got that. You got colorism, racism, sexism, um, all of these different things um, that teach us more about who we are as people and how we can include all people. Right. Um, yep. And I think even on, you know, on social media, we see things that like, 
are helping people to move away from colorism, like the idea that melanin is a superpower. um, Yeah. You know, or kind of like that, like not idea, but just kind of like that, that thing that you see a lot, you know, Um, and, you know, different things that are out for kids. Like, I I think there is, like, there's books about like, you know, melanin and and all these kinds of things um, that help people to realize that like, you know, having dark skin or having melanin in your skin is something that's beautiful and it's not something that should, you know, that should be shied away from or run away from, but it's something that is like a, a beautiful part of who you are, you know? Mm-hmm. And also just like people are more likely to call out these things, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate and like dangerous language that is used on the internet by companies, by people, individuals, people are more likely to call it out now, mm-hmm. which is great because it helps me to even know, oh, this is actually problematic if I say this or think this, um, which again, I think people are just slowly moving towards you know, acknowledgement is the first step. And when we acknowledge it and know it, we can know better and do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are also, yeah, I just appreciate all the conversations that are being had, especially when they're led by people who are darker skinned, in my opinion. Like, I think people who are lighter or, you know, have certain features, they need to use their privilege in terms of like bringing the conversation up to open the door. But then people who are darker skinned need to lead that conversation because you have the most experience with what that the oppression of it can feel like mm-hmm. and when that's when that conversation is led by them i'm i'm always learning a ton and i really try to listen and uh try to see yeah i just think it's, it's always a good opportunity to learn and i'm very grateful for them absolutely do you remember that that uh dove commercial that came out like a few years ago that had like a black what woman else? turning into a white woman on the commercial. No. Yeah. I don't so know this one. <laughs> I was thinking about that. So I looked it up. I didn't realize it was so recent. This was in 2017. Let me see. Oh my can... gosh. You also sent me the link because I do not know this. Yeah. Let me see if I can find the actual video. I don't know if I can find. Uh, maybe. But yeah. Hold on. Is this the. Let me see if I can pull it up and like show it on the. Yeah, it's like a black woman, and she like lifts up her shirt and turns into a white woman. Oh, what? Yeah, and I guess it was like to emphasize or to to point out like, oh, if you use Dove soap, it'll, I don't know what they what they meant by it. Interesting, but that's problematic that you're insinuating. <laughs> right. Oh, But yeah, you you talking about that? It just kind of reminded me of that. So I mean, looking at the commercial, like. It wasn't meant to be racist, obviously, but it's one of those things that it's just like, how did this get past? Yeah, it's like clearly there's no person of color or no black, no black person, something, nobody's in the room making this decision. So up on the screen is just a little clip of like part of the commercial. I'm not gonna play the whole video, but this is okay. what it looks like. Can you see it? Yeah. like pulls up her shirt and I guess it like it went multiple times but oh oh yeah so for those of you who can't see the video episode um, it's you know it's a video of a black woman wearing a brown shirt and she takes off the shirt and then underneath is like a white woman um, who wearing mm. a lighter colored shirt and then that woman takes off uh, that woman takes off her shirt and it turns into like a woman. She looks to be maybe like Persian or, or Middle Eastern, and she's wearing like a shirt that's a little bit darker. So just kind of a a weird a weird concept. I'm sure that they were trying to do something there, but it just kind of turned into like a yeah a problematic fiasco because it's really something that that didn't need to be done. And if they had had a person of color on the board. Or, yes, you know, in, in production team, in whatever. Process. Yeah, I remember this would not have. Mm-hmm. No. Little things like that, where it's like, if you just had one person there, like even there was a was it Dodge? They made a commercial for the Super Bowl, and they had like clips of different people in there, and they had a clip of Martin Luther King in there, and then like right after Martin Luther King, they're like Dodge built to serve, and it's like, oh, 
you know, I know it's not what you were trying to do, but like, yeah, <laughs> if you just had one person of color in there, they probably no. told you that's not a good look, you know, but then right. you got to roll it back. Even the Juneteenth ice cream that Walmart tried, just stuff like that. Where it's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, man, oh, just, just, I mean. just take it easy. Just relax. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we're going to get the video episodes up and rolling here again. Sorry, it's been not the best getting those yes. those published but we have had trouble with our our video recording system but yep. we switched over to one that's going to make it a lot easier a lot simpler and uh yeah we'll get those video episodes back up and running yeah uh well so we'll head to our final part of our episodes which is the recommendations yes, and um nate do you want to go first this week or yeah so actually my recommendation kind of goes along with what we talked about today it's a Netflix movie called The Jasmine's Blues. Have you watched it? No. So it's Tyler Perry's movie. Um, okay. That he he came out with like at the end of last year. Um, and normally, you know, Tyler Perry he makes he basically <laughs> makes like the American version of Nollywood movies. Like they're just very like <laughs> kind of low budget. Usually, like a pretty good plot, a good storyline, but just kind of like cheesy all the way through. Uh, but this one, apparently, this was the first movie he ever wrote. Uh, oh, like wow. Was, like, when he was still writing plays and things like that, he met August Wilson, and August Wilson just kind of, like, gave him some encouragement to ch- chase his dreams. And so he wrote this movie 27 years ago. Ooh. And he sat on it for all this time. And so, like, he said that everything that – I listened to an interview. He said that everything that he's kind of done over his career, like, getting his studio and everything, was so that he could make this movie. And wow. when I tell you that this is the best movie that Tyler Perry's ever made, it's really? Still like, yeah, it still feels okay. No, it, it still has, um, like telltale signs that it's a Tyler Perry movie. If that makes sense, hey. like, there's just certain things about yeah. his, his style that you're like, okay. But like, if you were just watching it and you didn't know that Tyler Perry had written it, you wouldn't know that. Um, and mm. I, also, I want to want to preface this: Tyler Perry's movies are great. I like them. I enjoy them. But it's just a you do. I love Tyler yeah, Perry movies. They're fun and they're so messy. <laughs> they're my it's childhood. Just, it's a different vibe. Like it's you know, if you're looking for like, I don't know, blockbuster style mega movie theater type yeah. movies, you're not going to get that. But you know, Tyler Perry has like what he has done um, in yes. film is is incredible. So I'm yes. all respect to him. But yeah, I'm just saying like this movie um, is very. It has a different. There are some things there that are still, you know, telltale Tyler Perry, but it also has a very different feel, and it is an incredible movie. Um, okay. It's a tough story. It's like, you know, it's a it's a black trauma story, but Whoa. you also know what's going to happen the entire time, so you kind of have time to prepare. At least that's how I felt. And just okay. the story is told so beautifully. It's written so well. It's told beautifully, but it actually mm. there's a lot in there that has to do with colorism. Okay. Um, so like, it, you know, it starts off with one. There's two sons. Um, the father favors the lighter son and Ooh. hates the darker one. Um, and you know, it's kind of just dealing with themes of that. And I mean, man, it's such a good movie. So watch it and uh, feel free to let us know what you think. Ooh. It's called The Jasmine's wow. Blues on Netflix. Jasmine's Blues on Netflix. Okay. I will watch. Um, my recommendation, I honestly am struggling to think of one because... I don't know, life is just so all over the place. Um, I think my recommendation for this week is centered around, just because, I'll just say this. I say, go out and like try to find, this is gonna sound super cheesy and super lame, but I say go out and really try to find somebody to serve and like help. Mm -hmm. Um, I just say that because a lot of people have helped me recently with, a lot of the things I've been going through and like trying to move because I'm moving right now. And just like a lot of people have been very gracious and helpful through this process. It's very quick that I've had to do. And it's made a world of a difference just with me being able to even do what I need to do um, and financially helping. And so I say, just figure out how you can help somebody this week. Um, Whatever that looks like, whether that's talking to your friend on the phone for an hour because they need to rant about, whatever's happening in their life or whether you need to drive to go see somebody I don't know um doing things to just help people feel loved um this weekend I came to my friend's baby shower to help her feel loved um even though it's a lot of money to come here I said you know what I'm gonna do it to help her feel loved and 
she's very grateful and gracious and like that couldn't the money doesn't matter when I look at the, how happy she was. And so I try to find some a way to make somebody smile this week and make them feel loved in whatever capacity that looks like. There you go. So that's my recommendation for the week. Love it, love it. Cool. Well, I think that's all we got for this week. Yes. Thank you, guys. I'll catch y'all later. Thank you for joining us on the Black Menace podcast today. Make sure to follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Menaces. And make sure to subscribe to our Patreon, the Menace Society, where you can get bonus content from us on the podcast, as well as extra clips from our videos that we film. And don't forget to email us at blackmenacepodcast at gmail.com for menace moments or any other questions that you want us to answer because this show is for you guys thank you and remember always be a menace thank you <laughs>